folks. Welcome back to another episode of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. We're back after a few weeks break. It was uh, the mid-cycle roadmap sprint last week at Canonical, where all the teams got together and discussed uh, their progress over the middle, well, certainly the middle of this cycle. So we're in the middle of the uh, 2310 cycle now. Every team is working towards their different development goals, and certainly the security team is no different. And we probably will talk about some of that a bit more in an upcoming episode. However, uh, today we've got a lot to go through in terms of uh, some vulnerabilities that have come out in the past couple of weeks. Plus, Andre is back to have another look at uh, some recent academic research. In particular, in this case, it's again around machine learning, but actually about how to safeguard machine learning systems when you use them in uh, different distributed deployments. So that's uh, really interesting, and we will get to that. But first, we will do the usual roundup of security fixes that have gone into the supported Ubuntu releases over the past couple of weeks. Now, there were 123 unique CVs addressed in this time. I'm not going to go into details about all of these, but I'm going to pick out some of the more interesting ones to look at. Uh, up first, I want to look at an update for Samba. Uh, this was for Ubuntu releases 2004, 2.204, uh, LTS respectively, 22.10 and 23.04. Now, uh, in this case, uh, there was a possible attacker in the middle attack if you had configured uh, to do SMB2 packet signing because that packet signing was not properly enforced and therefore someone could intercept that traffic and modify on the way and it would not be detected. There was also, a couple issues in the Spotlight protocol implementation. This is used to enable things like macOS clients to be able to search your Samba share via macOS Finder. In that case, there was a denial of service through a possible infinite loop that you could trigger if you had a uh, crafted RPC packet that specified zero elements as the number for like an array type structure within there. As well, there was a possible info leak where in the case of the uh, Spotlight protocol, it would return the full server-side path for certain resources as the result and that would therefore leak uh, details of the server-side back to the client. We had an update uh, as well for curl, uh, an update for ECDSA utils. Uh, this is a package uh, that is yeah, used for doing kind of uh, ECDSA signature checking and the like on the command line. Uh, and actually this vulnerability is very similar to one uh, from a year ago that was at the time dubbed psychic signatures uh, and that was in uh, OpenJDK or in Java. And I talked about that all the way back in episode 172. Basically, when checking signatures, it would fail to first check that uh, the provided exponents were not zero because if they are, then you can basically have a signature that is itself all zero and it will check out as being valid. Uh, so yeah, you need to first check that they are not uh, not zero before you go and uh, verify that. So yeah, that uh, simple fix to uh, fix that, but yeah, a basic kind of vulnerability there that really defeats the purpose of signature checking in that case. Uh, what else? Uh, we had updates for WKHTML to PDF, uh, a component for OpenStack, uh, FRR, the replacement for Quagga. Ooh, we had an update for OpenSSH. This is a single vulnerability. Uh, I know this has uh, got quite a bit of press. Uh, came out of the Qualys research team. And actually, it's a result of an incomplete fix for the historical vulnerability dubbed CVE 2016-10009. And that was in uh, the PKSC11 module in SSH Agent. And so not surprisingly, that's exactly where this vulnerability is as well. And uh, given the age of this, it goes all the way back to uh, OpenSSH in Ubuntu 14.04. And that's now uh, part of Ubuntu Pro, so it's in the extended security maintenance, as well as every release since. Um, so basically, in this case, if you had chosen to forward the SSH agent socket to a remote machine, which is helpful if, I guess, you then want to go and, say, uh, authenticate to further machines from that uh, remote machine, you can use your local SSH agent and access all the different uh, you know, credentials that you may have there. Then it could turn out the remote machine was able to cause your local SSH agent to execute arbitrary code. 
and uh, does this by essentially causing the PKSC11 module in your local SSH agent to load an attacker controlled library from within user lib on your local machine. Now, on the surface of it, you think, well, you know, if they can only load stuff out of user lib, that's a trusted path that's you know, controlled by the package manager. It's very unlikely to have a malicious library sitting there, even if the attacker can specify which one they want to load. However, the Qualys team, as always, uh, did really exemplary research in this case and found that they could kind of abuse this to load uh, a bunch of different modules. And when each of those gets loaded, all they have to do is essentially load it and then have it be unloaded. And the act of doing that would then trigger different effects. And they kind of called each of these uh, some surprising behavior as a result. Um, and basically, things like uh, they could have, say, one module that they would load would make the stack executable. They could have another one perhaps register a signal handler uh, for things like uh, the Segvault signal and others and you can essentially chain a lot of these together to then eventually get code execution uh, controlled by the attacker. Yeah, really cool research as I say. I've got a link to that in the show notes if you want to go and read more. Um, but yeah, so it, it, you know, even though it loads these um, modules out of a uh, trusted path, you can get uh, undesired effects as a result. It does require the client to be using SSH agent forwarding. This isn't something that is generally done. Uh, it's actually discouraged if you go and even read uh, the SSH man page they talk about discouraging that uh, and instead they say you should use uh, Jumpos which is uh, SSH-J you can use to specify that on the command line um, but basically this was fixed by making the module loading a lot more defensive doing things like checking that uh, when loading modules they had the expected symbols in them and if they didn't it would abort that kind of thing uh, so yeah basically tightening that up a lot uh, but moving on, what else? We had updates uh, for Graphite Web, uh, Django, uh, Vahi Oh, and uh, here's an interesting one. We had an update for AMD Microcode, and this is for the Zenbleed vulnerability, another one that got a fair bit of press in the last couple of weeks. Uh, it comes out of Google Project Zero. Uh, Tavis Ormandy uh, discovered basically a new hardware vulnerability by via fuzzing of the instruction set architecture. Uh, he's got a really good write-up of that on his blog, not just his approach to fuzzing, but also uh, the details of the vulnerability. As I say, it's called Zenbleed, and that gives a bit of a hint as to what it affects. As I say, it's update for the AMD microcode, so it's the AMD uh, Zen 2 family of processors that's affected here. Um, and it is related to speculative execution, but unlike other speculative execution vulnerabilities that we've seen in recent years, you think things like Spectre and the like, uh, instead, um, you know, it doesn't actually use speculative execution for part of the attack primitive you're not trying to you know speculatively execute some instruction to then infer some data instead Zenbleed itself is the result of the processor failing to properly clean up state after it speculatively executes in this case a particular vector register instruction in that case it then allows say an attacker thread uh, to go and read uh, that data from the vector register after uh, that speculative execution of it doesn't clean up properly and therefore read out data that comes from other processes on the system. This happens really because I guess the vector registers are a bit different than the normal standard registers on the CPU. Uh, they get shared, uh, they are implemented through this register file and that, as, as I say that sharing really means that you can then go and essentially read, it, uh, read that content after it fails to properly clean up through speculative execution. Now, uh, Tavis actually has a really handy proof of concept in his blog post, which is really good, and a lot of good details that go into uh, the more low-level um, you know, the more low-level concepts as to how this is a vulnerability and what happens there. Um, I'm not going to go into the, all that here, uh, just due to the nature of the 
uh, podcast. It's hard to get that across in audio, but he does have yeah, even some uh, nice little animation and whatnot on his blog. Uh, it's not clear if this can be, say, exploited remotely. Uh, you need to be able to have untrusted code uh, execution to be able to exploit this, and you know it is certainly possible through local code execution, but it's not clear that you can do that remotely, even, say, something like loading JavaScript into a web browser, because you really need a certain set of uh, assembly-level instructions to be executed to have a chance of exploiting this. But as I say, it does allow then a local untrusted user to essentially spy on all other processes in the system that are using these vector registers or using these vector instructions. Uh, that includes even processes run by root or processes running in other virtual machines and that kind of thing. So a nice little powerful uh, exploit here. Uh, and you've got to think, you know, what are the kinds of things that are actually using these vector registers? Well, it turns out it's a lot of a lot of things because glibc uses them to implement functions like stringlen and others. So, you know, checking the length of a string and that happens a lot uh, in all kinds of code. So you can think of stuff that wants to check, I don't know, the length of a string that might happen to be a password. So uh, basically you can go and then essentially read passwords that are being accessed uh, from other processes. And that's actually what one of his proof of concepts uh, did as he described in the blog where you can essentially read, you know, whenever anyone is, say, using PAM to log in, can go and read your passwords. So really cool stuff. Um, so AMD have released a microcode update to fix this, but it's, uh, that microcode is only for their server-oriented Epic line of processors. Uh, they're also codenamed Rome. Um, so in that case, all you need to do is install that microcode update and you're good. And that's what uh, we've released in this update here. Uh, however, uh, they are planning to do BIOS updates for uh, some of the other affected platforms. Think things like uh, the Ryzen family of uh, more consumer-oriented processors that are affected by this as well in that Zen 2 family. But uh, those aren't out yet, and that does mean that there are a lot of platforms out there without an official fix. Uh, as I say, according to their advisory, they will release those BIOS updates later in the year, but they're not out yet. So uh, Tavis did mention in his blog post, and we've got uh, links to that and actually copies of that in our uh, CVE information on this, that there is a workaround that you can apply in software. Essentially, there is a so-called chicken bit in the processor. And now a chicken bit is kind of uh, a little flag that you can set in the processor that enables or disables some kind of functionality that, you know, perhaps at, uh, when they implemented it in the, uh, the hardware, they weren't sure if they wanted that or not to be able to go into production. So they you know, enable different things to be able to be turned on or off. There is no documentation as to what this actually does but from what I can tell I think what it's doing is it's telling the processor to not speculatively execute this instruction that's affected um, and so how likely then has a performance impact as a result because there were things that you could do say in instructions that you could execute in parallel or out of order or speculatively in this case uh, that are now not going to happen so it will sort of slow down the instruction uh, pipeline and you know there won't be as much throughput there but it does mean that you're obviously then uh, protected from this and I've got uh, the details of that in the show notes and it's on our uh, CVU page and the USN page as well but essentially you set uh, a flag uh, a machine specific register for this uh, that then goes and turns this on in the processor now the upstream kernel developers have then turned that into a patch for the kernel that will automatically set this uh, this chicken bit if the associated microcode update is not present. Uh, and so for Ubuntu, we do plan to include that fix in the next round of kernel security updates, which we uh, expect to be out on about the 21st of August. But until then, yeah, you can, uh, if you are running untrusted code uh, on uh, one of these affected platforms, uh, then you can go and set this chicken bit manually. You could say have a you know, systemd job or something like that that goes and sets this uh, machine specific register. And I've got, again, details for that in the show notes if you want to look into that. But yeah, that is, you know, the latest hardware vulnerability that we've seen. 
What else? We had updates for the Linux kernel itself. So I'm going to just uh, describe some of these in high level. Um, we had a live patch that apply all the way back to our kernel in 1404 uh, under ESM plus all the LTS kernels since. Um, in this case, five uh, high priority CVEs were fixed here. Um, two of these we haven't seen before. So one of them was an out of bounds write in the NetFilter subsystem that could lead to a crash or code execution. Plus, there was also a use after free in the NetFilter subsystem as well. Now, both of those do require um, capnet admin, so essentially in the uh, root permission within uh, the network namespace to be able to exploit that. But that is the kind of thing you can get as an unprivileged user via an unprivileged user namespace, and therefore you can lead to privilege escalation in that case. Uh, so that one, you know, good to have those fixed. Plus, we've got three other vulnerabilities that I've talked about in previous episodes. So an out-of-bounds read in the USB handling code for the Broadcom full Mac USB Wi-Fi driver, uh, an issue where KVM would mishandle control registered for nested guest VMs, plus an out-of-bounds write in the network queuing scheduler. And again, that one is able to be triggered through an unprivileged user namespace as well. So if you are able to disable the use of unprivileged user namespaces on your system, you know, that is a really good um, technique for stopping some of these exploit chains. Uh, obviously, you know, they are useful for a lot of different applications, but if you aren't using any of those applications, uh, that is yeah, something that you can do. And again, I've got uh, in the show notes the full details of the different live patch versions that are applicable here. Uh, what else? So we had updates then for essentially all the kernels across all of our various different platforms. They roll in not just those fixes that I talked about, but uh, a heap of other uh, CVE fixes as well that we've seen in uh, recent uh, uh, podcast episodes. So I won't go into details on all of those. But yeah, if you haven't, you know, make sure you install all your latest kernel updates. Uh, what else? We had updates for um, Trove. Uh, what else? That's uh, that's part of OpenStack. Uh, LibXPM, LibVirt, OpenVM Tools, uh, LVM Toolchain was updated for a couple of issues. Um, what else? The X Server, uh, OpenISCSI, Wireshark, RabbitMQ, WebKit GTK, uh, OpenJDK, and LibRSVG. So just very quickly, I want to go into this one because I thought this was really interesting. So that's uh, the library for handling uh, SVG images. Uh, comes out of the GNOME project, and I think they're actually starting to re-implement a whole bunch of their code in Rust, which is kind of cool. But um, this isn't a memory corruption vulnerability. So this one, uh, you know, even if you are doing this in Rust, it wouldn't have saved you. In this case, it's a directory traversal vulnerability, essentially where uh, you can have uh, an XML file that specifies and uh, to include another file. And then if you just go and use essentially dot dot slash dot dot slash dot dot slash dot dot slash uh, etc. password, hey, you can go and include and therefore read uh, the etc. password file. So yeah, a really simple uh, proof of concept was provided by the upstream reporter when they uh, provided details of this in the OSS security mailing list. Um, but yeah, a nice little simple vulnerability there that was fixed for librsvg. And finally, we had updates for Firefox. This is the latest Firefox upstream release, 116.0. Uh, rolled in 12 different CVE updates there, and it's the usual mix of stuff that we see for web browsers uh, in that as well. Okay, and that brings us to the end of security updates for the past couple of weeks. So the other thing that I wanted to bring to you all this week is another uh, installment in Andre's effort to look at different interesting cybersecurity related academic papers. In this case, he's looking at a paper uh, discussing safeguarding machine learning infrastructure when used in uh, distributed applications. Basically think, you know, if you're an uh, organization that has, say, a really good machine learning system for um, inferring certain things, and then you want to go and apply that to other different organizations, but you want to keep those organizations separate from each other. You know, you don't want to say, you know, return results from one or organization back to another uh, so you want to need to keep those separate but you want to maybe be able to share your learnings between them with each other and so trying to safeguard that uh, yeah really interesting discussion so take it away Andre 
Hey Alex, thanks for your introduction. For those of you who are new here, I'm Andre and the purpose of this section is to explain cybersecurity papers. I hope that the informative content over here may catalyze your work, whether you are in industry or academia. In this episode, I want to continue our discussion of the intersection between cybersecurity and machine learning, which we began in episode 194. And no, despite what you may be thinking, we will not investigate the security of large language models. We will have to leave that intriguing topic for a future edition. The paper for today is titled Flame Taming Backdoors in Federated Learning, and it will demonstrate how to safeguard a distributed machine learning infrastructure in which a model is trained separately by many agents using their private data. The work was first published in Archive in January 2021, although it was revised several times until its final revision in December 2022. It was first presented at the Usenix Security Symposium last year. Its others are academics from universities in Germany, Finland and the United States. Let's assume we have a company called Devil Corp that provides incident response services to a variety of other businesses. The analysts are divided into teams and each team only works with one customer company. Each analyst examines information, such as logs in a CM or files flagged as harmful by third-party solutions, and makes a decision on how that information or alert should be actioned, for example, isolating a workstation. The information gathered during the incident response process must be kept private and not shared by the analyst with anyone else at Evil Corp. Following a meeting of Evil Corp's technical management, it was concluded that a machine learning model to help analysts in their incident response process would be beneficial. But given the previously mentioned confidentiality need, is this even possible? One possible solution to this concern would be to have a machine learning technique known as federated learning. The reason this technique can be of help is that it permits combining several individual models trained by agents on their private data set to create a centralized model. In the context of artificial intelligence, an agent is defined as an independent system that observes and acts on its environment. In our incident response scenario, each event in which the incident responder took an action will be recorded in a private dataset with a description of the action and the evidence considered while making a decision. This information will be used to train a local machine learning model on the customer premises, which will then be uploaded to Evil Corp. An aggregator will then use all of the obtained local models to generate a global model. Clients will profit from the global model in this way since any analyst reacting to incidents for them will utilize it to make more informed decisions. At the same time, the customer's data will stay private as it will not cross the bounds of their infrastructure. At this point, it is important to ask if the strategy of implementing federated learning to help provide confidentiality in our scenario is bulletproof. Well, you might not be surprised that there are numerous attacks that are still possible even with this decentralized approach. To begin, the aggregation process that combines the individual local models assigns each agent a weight. 
If an agent trained its model on the largest dataset available, the weight of its model in the final dataset should be the highest. The most basic form is a weighted average where the weight is calculated by dividing the dataset size of each agent by the sum of all dataset sizes. If a malicious actor were able to access or influence a local model, they might be able to claim that they trained that model on a massive number of entries in order to influence the final global model as much as possible. In other types of attacks, adversaries may attempt to infer data from a trained model. If the resulting global model is shared with the agents, an attacker may attempt to find the presence of a training sample known as a membership inference attack, a property of a training sample known as a property inference attack, or the property of samples of a specific class in the data known as a distribution estimation attack. Finally, if a malicious actor were able to train their own local models, they could poison the data used for training or the model itself. The purpose may be to simply degrade the model's performance akin to a denial-of-service attack or to conduct more focused attacks. An example would be an adversary attempting to alter the resulting global model in such a way that attacker-controlled inputs, referred to as the trigger set, result in certain inaccurate predictions that are selected by the adversary. The rest of the data is accurately predicted. These last attacks are known as backdoors on federated learning models and they are intended to be defended by the following mitigation techniques that are presented in this research paper. Flame is a resilient aggregation system that aims to eliminate the impact of backdoor attacks while retaining the performance of Benin predictions. The study broadens the concept of a trained model by defining it solely with a set of weights vectors. As a result, each model may be distinguished by two characteristics, its direction, specifically its angle, and its magnitude, particularly its length. To better understand the mitigation techniques that Flame is proposing, let's discuss the adversary model. Being generic, it makes no stronger assumptions regarding the attack approach or the underlying distribution of data in benign or adversarial datasets. The study presents a generic model made up of attributes that may describe an attacker but do not have fixed values. The adversary's purpose is to carry out a backdoor attack in which the model is tricked into generating inaccurate predictions for values in a trigger set and correct values otherwise. Furthermore, the attacker is thought to control a part of the agents which is less than half of the entire number. The poisoned model rate, which is equivalent to the fraction of agents in the federated architecture controlled by the attacker, is introduced here. The attacker's final characteristic is that he does not want to be discovered. The difference between a poison model and a benign model, calculated for example using the Euclidean distance, should be less than a threshold, which is referred to as the anomaly detector's discrimination capability. With this threat model in mind, the authors deduced what the goals of a protection against backdoor attacks should be. To begin with, it should be effective. The defense must prevent the attackers from carrying out their attacks. Second, the model's performance in benign forecast should be damaged as little as possible. 
Finally, the mitigation should be independent of the data distribution and the attack technique with no assumption made about the data being ingested or the attacker attempting to carry out the backdoor attack. Flame attains these goals through three phases. The first is automated model clustering. It assists in identifying and eliminating harmful models with large angular deviation, which has the most impact. The number of clusters is determined dynamically because the attack settings are unknown. Having a set number of clusters makes the model subject to pigeonhole attacks, which means an attacker may insert more backdoor values than clusters, at least one will be clustered and introduced in the final model. The next stage is weights clipping, which involves limiting the maximum magnitude of a weight vector. The clipping value is computed dynamically because selecting too small of a number will cause the benign values to be clipped, affecting model performance. And if a value is chosen that is too high, the backdoor values may still enter the final model. Finally, noise is used in a manner similar to that of differential privacy. It eliminates any remaining backdoor that remained after the previous two stages, especially those with an appropriate angular deviation such that they are clustered and an appropriate magnitude such that they are not clipped. The quantity of produced noise is dynamic because it should be large enough to remove the backdoors, but not so high that it affects the performance of benign predictions, which are based on an unclear data distribution. The researchers employed PyTorch as a deep learning framework to evaluate the proposed mitigation. The authors use existing source code for the state-of-the-art attacks, but they have to create new implementations of current defenses that can be compared to Flame. Three datasets have been used for word predictions, image classification, and IoT intrusion detection. The average outcome for backdoor attacks was encouraging and better than six other known defenses. The accuracy in predicting the benign values was 99.8% and all backdoors were effectively detected. The only time an alternative defense outperformed Flame was when the other was highly specialized on the sort of the data being injected, notably statistically non-independent and non-identical distributions. With this knowledge in mind, I'd like to conclude this episode. We've shown how federated learning can be used to train machine learning models in a distributed situation where the entity aggregating the local model does not possess access to the local private datasets. The paper presented today, namely Flame Taming Backdoors in Federated Learning, proposes a three-phased robust aggregation approach that eliminates backdoor attacks while preserving prediction accuracy in benign conditions. If you came across any interesting academic topics that you think should be discussed in this podcast so that the community can learn more about them, please email us at security at ubuntu.com. The floor is yours, Alex. And thanks again, Andre. Thanks, as always, for bringing us some uh, really interesting different uh, security research to look at. Uh, I always find it uh, yeah, really informative when uh, listening to those. So thank you, and I can't wait to hear the next installment. All right, so that takes us to the end of this week's episode. 
As usual, if you want to get in contact with the team, you can always email us at security.ubuntu.com or you can come and find us on the libera.chat IRC network. We hang out in the Ubuntu-Security channel and we're also on Mastodon. We are at Ubuntu Security at fosterdon.org there. Yeah, hit us up for anything Ubuntu Security related. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, so that is it for this week's show. Thanks everyone for listening again for another week. As always, I'll be back again with you next week. But until then, remember, keep calm because we've got your back and I'll speak to you soon. Okay, bye.